My message today is entitled, Follow Christ. Last week, if you were here, we discussed how we identify with Christ. And today, we continue in our own identification process. I want to tell you that if you missed last week's teaching, I strongly recommend you to go back to our website and listen to it. I don't often push that, but I think it was a really an anointed message for the times that we are living in this day. Um, so last week's question was, how do you identify? Today's question is, how do you identify with Christ? You see, many people claim to identify with their faith. But in doing so, they highlight different aspects and then often fail to fully embrace who the Word of God says that we are. When we do not have a full realization of who we are, we also limit exactly what we're called to do as members of the family of God. Therefore, today we will discuss the specific terms of identification in the hopes that once we understand each step of this progression, we can choose the level of commitment that God has truly called us to walk in. We don't just say, I'm, following, I'm, I'm with God and God does other work. We have to choose what we're going to commit to. And if we don't know what, what there is, then we commit to far less than what God has called us to walk in. The first name that we identify with is our role as believers. It's the same place that those closest to Jesus found themselves. After Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana, when he turned water into wine, we see how those nearby responded. John chapter 2, verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, after witnessing Jesus manifesting his glory through this miracle in public, that was his first public miracle, those with him now believed in him or became believers. This is one of the titles that people associate with themselves in reference to Jesus. Do you identify yourself as a believer in Jesus? Acts 5, verses 14 and 15. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick, listen to this, they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches and that at least the shadow of Peter passing by them might fall on some of them and be healed. You see, we see throughout Scripture that believers witness the glory of God and they see His mighty works through others and they come to believe in Jesus. But the question I have for you, is it enough to just be a believer? Is it enough to just stand on the sidelines and say, I believe because I saw something that happened? Or is it more that believing in Him is just the first step? James 2.19. Let me tell you about some other believers. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. If the demons believe in God, then only identifying ourselves as a believer is not enough. For we know the fate of demons does not end well as they find their eternal resting place in the lake of fire. Even in the case of the disciples who began to believe in Jesus at Cana, their lives would still experience radical times of doubt. 
radical times of pride and fear. Their faith was not empowered to where they needed to be simply by remaining a mere believer. Thus, let us consider the next way that we identify with the Lord. If a believer identifies with the Lord because of what he sees Jesus doing, then there must be a higher level when we see change in ourselves. Matthew 18, verse 3. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, unless a believer experiences a conversion, there is no pathway to heaven. No matter what he says, no matter if he wears a cross necklace or not, unless there's a conversion and a change, we're not called to come to heaven. A convert in the faith is one who has a change of thinking which results in a change of behavior. Acts 3.19 Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, the only way that we are truly converted is by the power of the Holy Spirit. This happens when we repent. What's it mean to repent? It means that we change how we think about sin. We don't think of, can I get away with it? We think, I messed up and I've hurt my relationship with God. I need to do something to change that. That's what repentance is. Christians are not perfect. They're just forgiven. But they're forgiven if they repent and they acknowledge that we've hurt our relationship with God. That's where the conversion is, the change in thinking. Even when no one's around, if I sin, God still knows it, so I'm not going to sin to get away with it because I know it's going to hurt my relationship with God. When a, tr- when a Christian has been converted, sin becomes a bad taste in your mouth. It's not that we're not ever going to sin. It's not that we're not ever going to mess up because we mess up all the time. But when we do, the Holy Spirit is wooing us to come back to God to make it right with Him. There's a conversion that happens. A repentant heart no longer seeks after sin willingly to get his or her needs met. On the contrary, when a convert considers sin, it should immediately bring conviction in the heart and mind, knowing that this sin will cause a break in our relationship with God. Therefore, a repentant heart is quick to come to God for confession, for forgiveness, for restoration, and for empowerment to live by the Spirit instead of by the desires of our flesh. Therefore, the way that you can tell a false convert from one who is authentic is by a clearly observable change evident to all. A hypocritical believer merely says he believes but does not experience any real change in thinking, speaking, and behavior. So I ask you this question. Is being a convert to the faith enough? Is that all that God expects of us? The answer is no. God has called us to do so much more. And as we appropriate His grace, we step into a deeper level of identification with the Lord. Acts 11.26 So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. See, we spend so much time talking about that we are Christians and what it means to be a Christian. Do you know the word Christian is only in the Bible three times? Yeah, it's only in the Bible three times. 
at the church of Antioch is where people were first called Christians. When Barnabas and Paul met up, they began to assemble together with the church at Antioch. A great many people there were taught the Word of God. And it was here that these believing converts were first called Christians. Therefore, what does this identification mean to us since we refer to ourselves as Christians all the time? Do we do it because we want to convince others by the title that we're following Christ? It says at the church they were first called Christians, which means other people called them Christians. This means that their behavior and their dedication to the work of the Lord, their speech, their habits were changed and recognized by others so much so that others began calling them Christians. This is an important step on identification. It highlights the passing of the torch. Let me explain. In ancient Greece, a torch race was held where participants would pass a lighted torch from one runner to the next. This tradition is reenacted in the weeks preceding the modern-day Olympics as the torch is passed around the world on every continent before ending up at the host site for that year. So what does it mean what does being called a Christian have to do with past the passing of the torch? Let me tell you. John 8:12. Jesus spoke to them saying, "I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life." One of the I am statements of Jesus in the book in the Gospel of John, one of these statements was that Jesus said he is the light of the world. We're familiar with this association as he declares that he is our guide through the darkness. How many know we need that light more than ever today? But curious, curiously enough, Jesus also uses the same analogy for us. Look at Matthew 5.14. Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, when a converted believer takes the light of Jesus into their heart and shares it with the world, we become that light in the darkness by virtue of who we bring into the darkness. This is the transfer that happens when we lead with His light instead of leading with our need to be right or our need to condemn or our need to judge. When we lead with His light, that's what we bring into the world. When we extend grace, when we offer forgiveness, when we come alongside those who are hurting, and when we intentionally seek out ways to share the light of Jesus with others. This is what Christians are called to do. That's why they called them Christians. It wasn't the people in the church at Antioch saying, hey, we're Christians. It was people calling them Christians because they could see Jesus in them. They could see the light of Jesus in them. This is how the torch is passed from Jesus to us as we share His light through intentional witnessing, through intentional serving. The light given to us was not meant to be kept to ourselves and to stay hidden. Matthew 5.15 nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. I mean, that seems ridiculous. But that's often what Christians do. 
I have this great blessing from God. I'm not going to go share it. I'm not going to get involved in the world because the world is dark and the world is dirty and there's a lot of evil out there, so I'm just going to stay here. God says, no, take your light into the world. That's the mission field out there. We need to share His light. We're not to put it on a lampstand. We're not to put it under a basket. We are to put it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. Listen, Christians are not only set apart from the world and gathered together with those who are like-minded, but if they are truly going to take on the name of Christ, that's what it means to be a Christian, to take on His name, then we must be diligent to give the same light of Jesus to everyone. Remember the Bible says this about us. It said that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It didn't say those who got all cleaned up and those who were running to God. It said while we were still sinning. Our sins put Him on the cross. But while we were still sinning, He died for us. We need to have that same light, that attitude towards people who are out there. That's what it means to carry the light of Jesus. Others will call you Christian when they see Christ in you. Therefore, Jesus instructs us in Matthew 5:16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When someone sees what you do, it's not us to say, well, thank you. Let me pat myself on the back while I'm at it. It's, you know, it's, it's like God has changed my life so much that I'm able to do this and I, I, I want to serve others because God has blessed me. I want to be a blessing to others as well. The torch is passed when we are doing good works simply because we are letting Jesus live through us in our words and in our actions and in our reactions and how we live amongst those around us. The good works of a Christian are not done to try to earn favor with God. They're not done to attempt to get praise from or attention from others. The good works are done to show that Christ lives in us, which gives us an opportunity to point people to Jesus. It's not for us to take the credit, but rather to give us the chance to talk about Jesus and how He's changed our lives and now lives through us to love others as well. How many have someone in your life, you don't have to raise your hand, but have someone in your life that you would probably classify as almost unlovable? Now, do you know that you were unlovable at a time to God? We all were. We all were unlovable to God. We were running after sin, pursuing it. And God still loved us when we were unlovable. Well, if we are Christians and take upon the name of Christ, then by His grace and power and love, we are able to love others, even if they're unlovable. That's what it means to live by His light, not by our strength. Yet the danger of remaining content with simply being called a Christian by others is that other Christians have also tainted this name. Keep in mind that others who identify as Christians to the world have not shied away from publicly sharing different views of sin. Many people say the Bible is outdated and it doesn't really mean much anymore. They don't see it as God's Word. They see it as a history book that can be changed. People share that the Bible is not reliable. Different Christians say that there's no need for repentance. God loves everyone. There's no need to repent for sin because God loves everyone. Some Christians say there is no heaven and hell. God loves everyone too much, so there's no consequences for anything we do. 
We see all the changes in the world, not just by the world, but by people who say they're Christians. So if we just stop and say we're Christians and I'm good with that identification, we're thrown into the whole lump with everyone else. There are many identifying Christians who spend way more time talking about politics than talking about Jesus. So while the original moniker Christian was a respected name clearly identifying with Jesus Christ because others no longer hold it into that same light due to great differences amongst Christians. So if that's true, it can't be the only way that we identify with Christ. Now listen, I am a Christian. We are Christians because we identify, we take on His name, and I'm not going to let the world change what that means to me, but we can't settle there. There's a deeper place how we can identify with Christ besides just saying that we are Christians. Think about this. Is it easier to say, I'm a Christian, or to go one bolder step forward and say, I follow Jesus Christ. He is my Savior and He is the Lord of my life. After all, Jesus didn't call us to be Christians. Rather, He called people to follow Him. Thus, a stronger calling and a stronger commitment that we are called to identify with Him is to be a follower of Jesus. What differentiates a follower, a follower, follower, easy for me to say, what differentiates that is the observable fact that we are following Him by observing His commands so that we stay within His perfect will. Now, of course, a lot of Christians ask me this question all the time. They want to know, I just want to know what God's will for my life is. I understand I have to be in God's will, but I don't know God's will for my life. If I just knew God's will for my life, I would be all set. I hear that all the time. Do you know that His Word is clear? Absolutely clear. What it takes to be in His will? Let me show it to you. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God. That's God's will. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. A follower of Jesus is able to rejoice and keep a heart of joy that the Holy Spirit has chosen to come live inside of us and is leading us day by day to our heavenly home one day. A follower of Jesus, listen to this because many people miss it here, a follower of Jesus does not let the world steal your joy. That joy comes from Jesus living inside of you. So when we get upset because of what happens in the world, we're saying to the world, you have more power than Jesus. And it absolutely does not. It's just that we forfeit it, we give it up. If joy is truly the fruit of the Spirit, then how can someone who purports to identify with the Lord be so angry and critical of others all the time? Be so angry because what they hear on the news or what a different movement society is going on. And if we become angry, it's like we're saying, I'm too weak, so I'm going to let you steal my joy. It's not what it means to identify as a follower of the Lord. How can a true follower allow the world, the news, politics, 
societal movements cause them to lose their joy so often and so easily. Scripture is clear that we are called and commanded. It's not a suggestion. We are commanded to rejoice always, which means unconditionally, regardless of what the world is saying. How is this possible? Because we have Christ in our hearts and we're bound for heaven. Because Christ has already blessed us in so many, many ways. Listen, a good friend of ours recently lost almost every material possession that he had. And when he got out, he was just thanking God that he still had his family, that he was safe. Do you understand that that takes just a heart of humility to look at and say, God, I can rejoice even in difficult times because I still have, I still have, I still have your love. We are commanded to rejoice always, not because of what's happening, but because of who God is. Because how God is always faithful when He takes care of us. We rejoice because Jesus defeated sin already. He already defeated death, hell, and the grave. We rejoice because Jesus freely forgives the repentant heart. He willingly comes alongside the weary soul. He powerfully lifts up the broken and the humbled life and endues us with world-shaking, life-changing power to live this life for Him. That's why we rejoice. We rejoice because nothing can snatch us from our Father's hand as long as we commit to following Christ and rejoice always. A follower of Christ also has constant communion with God. Now when it says pray without ceasing, it doesn't mean we pray 24 hours a day and get no sleep or work done. It means that God is always ready to talk to us. He's always ready to hear us, to come to Him, to ask Him, to to seek Him, to get closer to Him. He's always listening, ready to give us something. His door is always open. We pray ceasing if we're a follower of God. Pray without ceasing if we're a follower of God. A follower is also distinguished by an attitude of thanksgiving for all that happens. Understanding that every blessing comes from God. Even when difficult times happen and we go through trials and tribulation, we can be thankful that God is still on the throne and He's there to give us strength and grace and encouragement and peace and power to continue. A follower of Jesus is called to follow Christ, even and especially when it is difficult, when we face persecution and when the world turns against us. A follower of Jesus is really tested when we have a choice to follow the world at the site of persecution or to follow Jesus, no matter what comes against us. Listen, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. And he assessed Peter's willingness to follow him by having this conversation. Remember Peter? Remember when Jesus was being crucified? Before that, Peter said, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll follow you no matter what. I'll do whatever it takes. And as soon as Jesus was arrested, Peter said, that guy over there, I don't know who he is. I I never met him. I don't know him. Remember, he denied Jesus three times. And after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter just felt convicted. And he thought God would want nothing to do with him. 
He thought he would just be condemned and pushed away, and, and Jesus personally found him and restored him. And then he had this to say to Peter. John 21, verse 18. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will, not stretch, out your, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you to where you do not wish. Jesus goes on to say that this very statement prophesied how Peter would be martyred one day, be killed for committing to follow Jesus. He would not deny Jesus. For Peter was to be arrested and sent to be crucified. But Peter, not feeling worthy of dying in the same manner, he was ordered to be crucified, not, did not feel worthy of being, to die in the same manner as Jesus. He actually asked to be crucified upside down. Thus, this is what Jesus meant when he said, you will stretch out your hands on a cross. And another will gird you. He would be bound as a prisoner with chains and tied and bound to a cross. And carry you to where you do not wish. Meaning that he would be pointing towards hell instead of heaven. Verse 19. This Jesus spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Even so, despite knowing the persecution that awaited his followers, Jesus tells Peter not to worry about what the world wants to do. Don't worry about what the world thinks it's doing to you. Your only instructions, our only instructions are to follow him. In various parts of Scripture, Jesus is described as the good shepherd who leaves the sheep who are following him. What attitude must we keep to continue following him? You know the scripture, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You see, we must fully believe and understand and embrace the fact that because we have Jesus, we have need for nothing else. That's the true attitude of a faithful follower. Listen, everyone, everyone follows something or someone. Either they follow the dictates of their fleshly desires, or they choose to follow the world, they choose to follow another. But converted believers of Jesus Christ who walk as Christians in the world are called to follow after Christ alone and have no yearning for what the world offers. When we are satisfied by simply being in Christ, then we become authentic followers of Jesus. We truly believe that following Christ leads us to every truth declared in Psalm 23. Verse 2. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Boy, I could use that right now. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me, God. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. Listen, there is no valley too low, there is no valley too deep or too dark that Jesus will not lead us through it 
if we put our trust in Him. It's the enemy that tempts us to cower back and says the valley is too treacherous or it's too dark or God will not be faithful. That's the enemy trying to put that in our head when we go through trials and challenges and valleys in our lives. But if we trust Jesus through the valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death, what happens when I die? Well, I know if I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I don't have to wonder. He's going to take me home to His promised land. He will indeed remain faithful to lead us into that land. When we follow Jesus, He equips us for every part of our journey, no matter what befalls us. His ever-abiding presence is always there to see us through. Verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the promise that propels a follower of Christ all the way into eternity. And this promise is available to all who choose to follow Him with all their hearts. And while being a follower of Christ is a great commitment of which we are called to partake with daily prayer and a heart for continuing to trust our Good Shepherd every step of the way, there still remains one other way that we identify with Jesus. As we continue to seek Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, the goal is that we ultimately walk as disciples in the world. A disciple is a student of the Master, desiring to become like Jesus and wanting to be used by God for God in whatever way He sees fit. You know what that means? We just talked about this last Wednesday. If we say to God, God, use me, you know what that means? That means He's going to have some difficult, unfair circumstances happen to you so that you can reflect His glory in the middle of that darkness. He, can have, he, he may have someone treat you unfairly so that you can demonstrate forgiveness. He may have different, difficult things happen to you so that you can say, I'm still going to rejoice no matter what happens to me. If we are a disciple, we're saying, God, use me in this world no matter what. I trust you, God. if we are called to be disciples. A disciple is one who follows another for the purpose of learning and applying each lesson in an attempt to be seen as an extension of the Master. A disciple of Jesus actually becomes the hands and the feet and the mouth and the heart of Jesus to a lost and dying world. The word disciple comes from a Latin origin, dis, which means apart, and kapir, which means to take hold of, to take apart. In other words, in order to grasp intellectually and to analyze thoroughly that you, are, you study the Word of God and you take it apart. You don't just read over and say, what's the next verse? You take it apart and you ask God to give you discernment about what it means. You look at the origin, the meaning, the application, the place and context. You look at the references and you understand how to apply it to your life. We don't study the Bible just to study a history book. We study it to say, God, how is this me? How can, you, I, how can I reflect you to this world? By standing on this verse. 
This is what a student of God does. It's well known that you remember partly what is told you. You remember a little bit more of what you read for yourself, but you remember and understand far more when you do it yourself and when you're able to teach others to understand it as well. That's what a disciple does. A disciple not only has a heart to study the Word of God for himself, but seeks to teach others the Word of God so that the body of Christ is multiplied in the earth. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study and do yourself... Could I worship team come up, please? Study and do your best to present yourself to God. Approved. A workman, tested by trial, who has no reason to be ashamed, accurately handling and skillfully teaching the word of truth. Jesus calls us to not only be his disciples, but to disciple others as well. And the way we do this is by knowing and applying the word of God and living what we teach. But all of it, the loving, the unlovable, the coming alongside of the broken, the refraining from judgment of those who have different beliefs than we are, believing that the light of Jesus is going to flow through us and touch their hearts. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Are we abiding in his word? I'll tell you that the one way that the enemy is working the hardest right now is to come against us as disciples. Because a disciple seeks to multiply the body of Christ. Do you know what the body of Christ is the hope of this world today? We must seek to continue to come closer to God, to know Him, to go into all the world and to make disciples of the nations. And Jesus said that when we do this, He will be with us even to the very end of the age. That's what He's called us to do. We need to believe. We need to be converted. We need to be Christians. But we need to follow Christ and obey His commands and seek to make disciples over the earth. Are you willing by the grace of God to follow Him? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is alive and activates the faith in us. God, forgive us when we have judged others. Forgive us when we have not fully embraced and understood who, who you are. Forgive us for not fully identifying with you, but as we do this right now, as we choose to follow you, empower us by your grace to be your light in this world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.